Welcome to the Explore Worlds Discover Worlds podcast, presented by Bradford Literature Festival. In this episode, we hear from Ben Ockrey, one of the foremost writers of our age, as he tackles the biggest existential challenge facing the world today, climate change. Recorded live at the 2023 Bradford Literature Festival, this episode provides an insight into his new book, Tiger Work, which has a powerful and personal appeal for change before there is no world left for us to fix. Oh, hello everyone. My name's Yvette Huddleston and I'm delighted to uh, be involved in this event with Ben O'Cree um, and lovely to see so many of you here today. So Ben is a poet, novelist, short story writer, playwright and screenwriter. He's the author of many books, including the novel The Famished Road, which won the Booker Prize, first Booker Prize winner to go to number one in the uh, paperback bestseller lists. He's won many other awards over the years, um, in, and in 2019, his novel Astonishing the Gods was named as one of the BBC's 100 novels that shaped our world. His work blends myth, history, and folk tales, and it's been translated into many lang 26 languages. Um, as well as many novels, short stories, um, short stories, and essays, he's also written several poetry collections, and the most recent ones, A Fire in My Head, which was published in 2021. His first children's book, Every Leaf for Hallelujah, which was a beautiful eco-fable which addressed the global environmental crisis, was published last year. And we spoke about that here, actually, last year. Um, and today we're going to be talking about two of his books. Um, his novel, The Last Gift of the Master Artist, which was first published in 2008 as Starbook. And his latest book, Tiger Work, which is published, I think, next week, isn't it? Yeah, so yeah. it's hot you're, off the press. You're, you're ahead of the curve. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and that combines fiction, essay, and poetry and tackles the ur urgent issue of climate change. And you'll be getting a world exclusive here today, this afternoon, because um, later on in the event, Ben is going to be reading um, the sort of key poem in tiger work, which is, I will blow your socks off, um, but we will get to that shortly. So, Ben, if we start first with the last gift of the master artists. So, I mean, it, it's a really interesting thing to do, to decide to substantially rewrite a novel. What prompted that, and why did you decide to do it? Um, I think before I begin answering your question, I want to say what a pleasure it is to be back at the wonderful Bradford Literary Festival. And uh, thank you all very much for being here. So it's, uh, it's a pleasure um, and an honor. Um, now, why, what, what prompted me to rewrite Starbook as yes. the last gift of the master artist? Yes. <clears throat> you know, um, the novel is a strange form. Um, D.H. Lawrence believed that it was the, 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 the master form literary, of, of literary, of the literary forms. I don't totally agree with him, um, but the novel has become the, he called it the, the big bright book of life. It's a very, it's something about the novel um, 
You can, you can, it's this big sort of bulky bag in which you can put everything and sling it on your shoulder. <laughs> and it's got, it's got your camp bed in there, it's got your, it's got your tent, it's got a little <laughs> cooking implement, it's got your soup, your jacket, your trousers, your shoes. It's a little house. It's actually a little universe. Mm. Um, you can take it with you when the city's burning and you can start a new life somewhere else just with all that's in that bag. And that's what the novel is. Um, so it's, it's, it's almost impossible for it to be a perfect form mm. because of that, because of the very nature of how it's come to be developed. Um, and you write a novel like Starbuck, which is, which, you know, I, I carried Starbuck for many, many years. It's an anguished story. It's a story that my mother told me when I was a child. Um, she, she, she began telling me this story about an ancestor, um, and then she didn't finish it. It's one of the things that she, she, she does. I, it's a very, it was a very annoying and a very, <laughs> um, very fascinating um, thing that she had. She would, she would just start to tell this story, and it would be very gripping, and it would catch my imagination. It would freeze me in whatever I'm doing. And then she would just, she would just stop. Right. <laughs> And I'll try and get her back to it. I said, Mommy, that story you were telling me, I'd keep... And she says, oh, yes, that story. Ah, I must finish that story I was telling you. <laughs> um, and, and, and often she never did. Um, and this was one of them. But this was the most intriguing of all of her little unfinished masterpieces. Um, and, so, years, and years went by. Many, many years went by. And I, the story kept coming back to mind. And... Um, I just thought, well, mom didn't finish it. I'm going to bloody well try. <laughs> um, and so I started writing this thing from this innocent, and then it led me into a rabbit hole of, of memory of, of the, the tribe, my mother's people, history. And then, boom, it went out into the, the very beginnings of the slave trade and beyond that. Um, and it was all, it, all of it was in there, in that little unfinished fragment that mom told me, less than 30 seconds long, the story mm -hmm. she told me. So it came out, and I, I, really, I really think there's something very powerful about unfinished things for that reason. They haunt us, and they pull from us all manner of unexpected and sometimes unrelated things. Mm -hmm. And all of that came out into this, into this bag, this bag called Starbook. Bursting, it was bursting with stuff. Mm. Um, and, you know, I, you know, it was very well received, it was taught and all of that. And then years later, I realized, I realized something that, I, that very rarely happens to me. I realized that um, the story that my mom told me and the novel itself that I wrote had um, an aesthetic code which I hadn't listened to. Mm -hmm. I'd written the novel, but I'd not listened to the code, the right. inner code of the book, of the work. And every work has an inner code, which most, most of us writers, we don't listen to the inner code. We just, we just bash out the outer code. Um, and it was years before I realized that the inner code of this book, I hadn't listened to it. And the code was simply respect the gaps. It's just gaps. It was about gaps. Mm -hmm. um, because my mom told me this story. It was unfinished. So there's a big gap. Um, the story is about gaps in our history. Um, it's, about, it's about gaps in our memory. It was, 
And the funny thing was that GAPS was actually written into the book, but I had not, I had not respected the aesthetic code of GAPS. Right. Years later, when I was looking over it, I suddenly saw that I'd written Starbook, the very opposite of GAPS. And I, I just knew, I knew that I had to, re I had mm. to rewrite this book. Mm. Um, and what, because you, you have said in interviews, you know, that actually writing the original book was very emotional, you know, very, it took very, a lot out yeah, of you. Yeah, because I'm dealing with, dealing with race memory. With, exactly. With the most painful quite memories. traumatic, I Very, imagine. very traumatic. Yeah. I, was, I was ill afterwards. Yeah. For, for years afterwards, I was yeah. ill. So then revisiting it, I mean, did you approach that with some trepidation, I imagine, or...? I, I, visited, I revisited it as something that we writers very rarely do. Um, I revisited it as self-punishment for not having listened to the god of creativity right. or to the goddess of creativity. You know, you hadn't listened to the key instruction. She'd given you two instructions. You'd heard the first one and run off. Um, but the second instruction, the most important instruction, you hadn't listened to it. Mm -hmm. And so I had to do penance. And it was a long, painful, long, painful penance. Yes, it I was, think it, yeah. did it take you around five let's years? Not, let's not go into the number. <laughs> okay, right. Don't add to my trauma. Sorry, sorry. <laughs> All right. I mean, you were doing other things, obviously, alongside, and this was just a kind of private project. I don't think you told I didn't you tell tell anybody. anybody ahead of I didn't time. Tell, I, didn't no. tell them. I didn't even tell my closest friends. Right, yeah. Um, mm -hmm. But what, that's the nature of penance, isn't it? Yeah. True penance, you don't tell anybody, you just do it. <laughs> so... Although, otherwise, it's showing sure off. <laughs> so you, you know, that key theme of of the advent of the transatlantic slave trade. I think you've said that you wanted to sort of give that more weight Wait. and prominence, um, and and also to make the book more political. I think is is that yeah. is that right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah but so. political, political. Political is not what people think. Political is not putting more politics in there. Uh, polit politics is actually removing... The political in, this, in, in terms of this book was just simply removing more of the vegetation around the story. Yeah. Um, yeah. So in this book, clarity was political. Right. To make it clearer, to clear the sights around this sunken city. Yeah. Um, suddenly you see this city. Um, that was that was mm. the politics. Right. Um, I didn't have to. I didn't have to stuff more in it because it was all in there. If you, if you ever get to read Starbuck, you will see it's a bursting book. It's mm -hmm. it's a very. Um, I think of the African landscape where you know you you've got you've got seeds in your pocket and a seed accidentally drops out of your pocket onto the ground. It doesn't matter where it drops; it'll grow. That's Africa. Um, and this novel was very much like that. It was mm -hmm. like explosive in its overabundant creativity. It right. needed, it needed, um, it needed some good yes. work around it. And what was it like? You know, just sort of because you're kind of looking back. I mean, it's fifteen a fifteen year gap, wasn't yeah. it? Was it interesting, sort of looking back at? yourself in a way, or did you try and keep yourself out, out of the I equation? I went back to mum. Right, I went all the way back to mum. Mm. It was the only way I could do it. Right. I had to go all the way back to the source of the story. And I kept keeping mum's voice in my head. And that fragmentary way she, she tells, tells me stories, because I was such a stubborn kid. She would just, <laughs> you know, she realized it was the best way to get my attention, that complete things 
doesn't get my attention. If you finish something, I'm bored. Mm -hmm. um, if you start to finish it, and I sense you're going to finish it, I've, I've, I'm, you're already, on to something else. I'm already gone. <laughs> so she realized very quickly that... Um, ben, let me tell you this story of what happened to this tortoise who thought it was too clever than everybody else. I'm like... <laughs> well, one day this tortoise... And then... Yeah. So I went back to the voice, I went back to her voice, and I went back to the anguish in her voice. Because the reason why she told me this story uh, was because it was a, almost a repressed um, family story, a repressed yeah. ancestral story. Um, and the most traumatic things are often the most repressed things. Nobody had spoken about it for years. Mm. And I think she just remembered at that moment that she began to tell me that story. Yeah. So there was a lot of concealed anguish in that. And, um, yeah. Yeah. And then it's, it's that kind of intergenerational trauma, as you say, yeah. you know, that's just passed down. Yeah. But so also, also the thing is, it's um, the important reason, the important um, aspect of the book for me is that it completes um, the two sides of this story. Because most of the stories that we have about, about, about the slave trade and the, 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 the trauma of that and what that gave rise to is the other side of it um, when they went over. Um, we don't have enough of this side of what happened mm. on the Africa side of it. Um, and I think to not have the Africa side means we don't have a complete picture, complete mm. literary picture of, this, of the meaning of this experience. And one aspect of the meaning of this experience was the way in which it actually damaged and traumatized the African continent. When people say stuff about Africa, they don't realize that Africa has been living under it's not, the colonial, it's not the colonial experience that was the, that was the real trauma. The real trauma, the unspoken trauma, is the slave trade. Yes. You know, that went to the heart of a, of a people mm. and cauterized it and smashed it at its heart and often un, 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 unknown to itself. Um, so that side of the trauma, which is never spoken about, I, I, I really felt needed to be needed to be expressed, forward, yeah, yeah, that, yes. that Africa suffered enormously mm. um, um, from this historical... Yeah. And as you say, um, it's not a conversation that's had enough or no, it's understood not. in enough depth either and the, the no, ramifications of it. And I, think, and I think on the African side, I think it's... The African side is... Um, see, there, are form, there are different forms that trauma takes. Um, um, one is an, an unwillingness to remember sometimes. Mm -hmm. Something so awful happened to you and you, you, you don't know how complicit you, you, you were in it. Um, and I, many Africans I find, they, just, they, 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 they have a difficult relationship with, 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 with the slave trade for that reason. Mm -hmm. um, and that, that fascinates me as well and I wanted to write that into the book. Right. Because everybody's, everybody's got to heal. Everybody's got to... Yeah. I mean, you, you've said that it's an older, wiser, humbler, and more considered book. Um, well, it's only, because I was, it's only because I was humbler and, and older. Yeah. Um, I, I wrote it in a burst of, of anger, of illumination, of all sorts of things. But when I came to do this difficult work... Um, I was, I'd, I'd been beaten about a bit. Yeah. Um, I'd been, yeah. A lot of life happens in a 15 of, years, a lot of, doesn't a lot of it? Life, yeah. A lot of life happens, yeah. yeah. 
I, I was interested because, um, well, just interesting to read in your introduction to it that you mentioned that, you know, that obviously, as you say, it was at the kind of time before life, the lives of Africans changed forever. And that you were looking at that, you mentioned you know, how complicit or to, what made them susceptible to the catastrophe that was to befall them is what you, how you phrase it. And that you, you make parallels with that, with the current environmental crisis. So yeah. as we hasten towards an end that we refuse to see. So that brings us neatly onto <laughs> Tiger work, which is an absolutely brilliant piece of work um, and very, very powerful and thought-provoking. Um, and you address that, the climate crisis head-on, you know, complete, but very um, courageously and with a lot of righteous anger. I, mean, I think it's, it's really, really outstanding work. It struck me that it's kind of... Um, not to simplify it at all, but a grown-up version of that of that wonderful children's book, Every Leaf a Hallelujah, that was published last year. And I wondered if it was in your mind to write this when you were writing Every Leaf a Hallelujah, or did it come at about the same time, or how, or how did it work? <clears throat> well, when I was much younger, I was a writer who sort of, um, when when an idea came to me, I wrote it. I just threw myself um, into it. Some will say <laughs> I threw myself onto it as onto a sword. <laughs> <laughs> um, and that has many, many problems because you, you find when you come back you have more rewriting to do, um, which is more pulling out of sword, if you like, if you want, if you want to extend that metaphor. Um, but with, with, with tiger work, I've been carrying it in my, in my mind for a long time. Mm -hmm. And I knew I didn't want to write uh, a single work. I knew I wanted to write a cubist work. Um, I've spoken of myself as a cubist. That's because I like going round. Um, I, think, I think with every subject, every subject, every important subject, there are parts of it concealed from us, um, which we never explore. Um, and it's only with a cubist approach where you go around all the aspects of it. You know, the way in which a good sculptor, you know, if, if you want to know, who, if you want to know a, a really good sculptor, the front of their sculptures are t terrific, the details are amazing. Go look at the back, where people never look. And that's where you know if they're really any good, because they take as much care with the back, which will never be looked at as, as, as with the front, which, which will. Um, and I, I wanted to look at the back and the bottom and the east side and the ears and the top, and that meant using all the all the all the all the powers of literature, mm -hmm. you know, the the short story, the poem, the essay, the interview, the letter, to just get round this subject. It was a I've become more indirect in my approach. I know you say it's frontally about the climate change, but the mm -hmm. technique is indirect always. Oh yeah, yes. Um, and in a way, I find that. I mean, I think it's more powerful, you know, because that there are, um, you know, these kind of missives from the future as well. You mentioned letters, which is which are really, really make you sit up and take notice, you know, um, and there's kind of fragments of notes and so on. And I, it, I, I felt, you know, that, you know, art literature can make those points more powerfully than if you'd written a piece of. Non-fiction. So, 
Non-fiction will be more informative. <clears throat> um, I'll, give you, I'll give you lots and lots of facts if it was non-fiction. Mm. But as I've said before, I think facts, facts don't affect the imagination in the same way. And facts very rarely affect emotions in the same way. Mm. Um, I don't know why that is. I, I think it's because of the abstract nature of facts. Um, but one fact that is unavoidable is that we are hovering um, right now as we speak on the brink of environmental collapse. We are, and I think that this, this, this climate change crisis that we're dealing with right now, I think it's one of the most, um, one of the most difficult that's faced the human race mm. in its long evolution. Um, and I think it's also unprecedented. We've never, we've never encountered anything like this before. We, we don't have anything like this quite in our living memory. Mm. We have other floods, we have other cataclysms that's embedded in myth. Um, the loss of Atlantis, the, the floods mentioned in different religions and in different mythologies that seem to have swept across the whole world. But they're just residues, they're just, um, they're just trace, trace memories. Mm. Um, I think the difference with this, this moment in which we find ourselves is that there's almost, there's almost nobody on the planet right now, unless you're seriously illiterate um, and don't even get into conversation about, about what's going on in the world, that is not aware that something is not quite right with our environment. Mm -hmm. uh, even if you don't know what climate change is um, and you're a farmer, you will know that something's not quite right about the earth. You know that something's not quite right about the, the forest, that they're vanishing. Something's not quite right about your rivers. They're, they're not there anymore. They're now riverbeds. They're dry with stones. You know that something is not quite right with the world. You might not give it a big global name or big global title, but you know that, some, that we have shifted in our relationship with just about everything that makes us um, live in a sustainable universe. Um, so. Mm -hmm. We have never been in a time before where we are aware of what's happening to us, aware of what we are doing and how we're contributing to it. Mm. We have never, ever been in a situation like this. And I find it very weird that we are aware of what we're doing. We're aware of what is being done to us as a result of what we're doing. We are aware of it, and yet we carry on as if we're not. Mm. There's, there's um, a... We carry on as if as if there were no crisis happening. It's a very, that capacity is there in the last gift of the master artist, mm. this capacity of the, human, of the human race, of the human being to know something terrible is hovering over you and somehow to not want to face it mm. and to just carry on. So in a sense, we, are, we constantly sleepwalk. Yeah. Constantly sleepwalk into, into our own disasters. disasters yeah. um, so, I mean, there's a real, there's so many points in, you know, where you, why you point that up so brilliantly. I mean, there's a great short story uh, close to the beginning of the book about a young woman at an academic conference, which is who I, I'm guessing the young woman is based on Greta Thunberg. Uh, and she sort of very forcefully makes the point to the people in the audience that if it's not affecting me, I will do nothing, basically. That's, that's it, isn't it? But, yeah. so, and how can we change that attitude? It's very difficult. <laughs> it's very difficult because I because I sympathise. I sympathise with us. You know, big frightening things hanging over you. I mean, we do we do it in our daily lives. You know, we 
you know, we have huge overdrafts. <laughs> you know, people know that they've not, their money isn't coming in to pay their mortgage. For They know that they're getting all these letters through the post. I mean, it, mm. you know, we, 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 we're like that. We have, we have huge sort of credit card, you know, and we, we just somehow just refuse to face it and we'll go buy that new car, we'll go buy that new fridge. Um, and I think it's a kind of mechanism um, that we have. This mechanism of not facing, I think, is also in a weird sort of way, in its own way, also a kind of survival mechanism, which we have to find a way to turn off. Right. Um, mm. f and facts don't do it, you know? Mm. The, the, the stuff coming through the post, that, those are the facts. Red bills, urgent, written <laughs> on the front, you can't miss it. Um, those are the facts, and we can, so we need, a, we need another way, and I think stories can do that because stories are gentler, yeah. um, and stories work inside the house. The best stories are like spies, you know, they infiltrate, <laughs> you know, they, they get into the psychic system, mm -hmm. and they speak from inside, um, and they can whisper, they can say, you know, um, I know you're not looking at all those bills, but maybe you should talk to somebody. <laughs> and you're like, yeah, you're like, okay, maybe I should talk to somebody. Yeah. It's very gentle, and yeah. it speaks to the, the part of us inside that acts without fear. Yeah. It's the fear that makes us not act. It's yeah. the, so yeah. I, I think stories and poems and might, might, just, might just do it. Um, yeah. Something has to do it. Yes. It's um, more relatable. Wake, wake us it's, up. Yeah. Well, there are lots yeah. of phrases that stayed with me for a long time and will continue to stay with me for a long time. One of them it was, can't you hear the future weeping, which is a repeated refrain. And I think that will probably... Something like that may, you know, prompt somebody to do something in a different way, I think. So it's very powerful. What... I mean, you said, you know, you didn't want to fill it with facts, and, and, and you don't. But did you do any sort of research, you know? And, yeah, and I, did a lot of like? yeah. I did a lot of research. Mm. I was overwhelmed by the research. The research nearly stopped me altogether, <laughs> to be honest. The research nearly froze me. I, I, the points I just, it was just too much, actually. Mm. It was just too much. It was, mm. it was, it was frightening. Mm. Um, I mean, when I, was, when I came to write the, the, the children's book, which is about um, saving the forest in Nigeria, um, and I just did some casual research, because I knew growing up in Nigeria, you know, um, I'm, from, I'm from the Delta, forests all around you. You, you know, you, you leave your house and there's the forest. And the forest is not only a reality, it's a mythology, it's a god, it's a, it's a place of healing, it's a place of solitude, it's a place of solace, it's a... It's, it's a place of initiation. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a place for food. So if, you know, if someone is ill, grandmother will say, come out, be back in a minute. She'll go out, she'll come back with bark, or she'll come back with some leaves, squeeze it, and drop it in your eyes or something. And it was that, that's the forest. I went to school, come back, half of it's gone. Yeah. Go to second school, come back, another quarter gone. Go to university, come back. And you look, miles and miles around. It's all gone. Mm. And during those years, you know, you'd be going to school and these big trucks with huge 
trunks of trees, chopped up trunks of trees on the back of them would grind past you and you'd, you'd barely notice it. And they'd be like, two, three, four. They're going past you. You never stop to make a relationship between mm. <laughs> that stuff on the back of those trucks and what was happening to the what was happening in the forest. And that's another human thing we've got, um, another human problem. We're not, we're not good at making links uh, between the evidence and, and the reality. And I just wanted to draw attention to that. And I looked, researched the facts and found, to my astonishment, that 95% of the Nigerian forests have been, have been destroyed in the last 50 years. 95%. That's, that's paralyzing. Yeah. <coughs> that's, that's paralyzing. Um, right. And yeah. is there, as I mentioned, you know, it feels very fueled by righteous anger, frustration as well. Is there any hope or, or you know, because it's not completely hopeless, the, the book, but where did you, did you find any or was it hard to find? And I, I, found hope in the, I found hope in the oddest place, to be honest with you. I, I didn't find hope. For me, hope is not in the most obvious place that we're going to somehow wake up one day and just turn this ship around. I don't think we're going to do that. Um, I don't think we're going to have marches and marches across the world and governments and corporations are going to just wake up and go, okay, you're right, we're going to do something about it. I don't think that's going to happen um, for all sorts of economic reasons um, and self-interest and so on and so forth. I found hope in indirect places, indirect places. Um, I find hope in love. I find hope in the fact that there's something about us um, we human beings, there's just, you can't entirely write off the, 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 the human spirit. There's mm -hmm. just something about us. Um, and when it's really, really called for, when our backs are really, really um, up against the wall, we, we really amaze ourselves. Uh, to borrow a phrase of an earlier book of mine, we, we, we sometimes are capable of astonishing the gods. Um, <laughs> But this is, um, it's, it's not a hope that anyone should, should, should depend on. I think it's a dangerous hope to rely on. Yeah. Um, but you do say love, you, you mentioned love, and that's another strong phrase, which is love is the power that stands between us and extinction. It's the last so, power. Yeah. yeah. Mm. Love so, of ourselves, love of our families. And wanting to do of, the right love, thing for the next Yeah, generation. love of nature, yeah. love of life itself. Right. So, um, there's, I mentioned those notes from the future. There was one, you know, reflecting on the, in, the inaction of human beings, and you say, you know, that it's that these kind of alien beings who are researching the Earth saying that they found it very strange that we carried on exactly as we had done over the final decades, you know, even when you can see that disaster coming every day. Um, and that's sort of compounded by, you know, some politicians denying it, so. Yeah. <clears throat> I think the job of the artist and the job of the every, every, every human being, really, is, um, is a kind of quiet personal um, um, action and contribution, a kind of quiet uh, refusal to, mm -hmm. to fall asleep. Yeah. Um, I think it's... Um, what can the artist do? The artist, all the artist can do is, 
is find new ways of writing urgent on that envelope that's, yeah. coming, that's <laughs> coming through the letterbox. Um, maybe indirect ways. Maybe there is a gift in here, <laughs> if you can see it. Um, because there is. I've said this before. I think there's, there's, I think there's a gift concealed in this, in this moment in which we find ourselves, this environmental moment. There's a secret gift. And the secret gift is bringing, bringing the whole globe together as one. Um, for the first time in a long time, none of, this, none of the wars, none of the great wars did it. People all over from Africa, India, you know, are, are coming together aware that, you know, the responsibility for this planet is now all of us. You know, it's, it's, it's in all of our hands. And I think it's bringing about a new global awareness. Yeah of the oneness of humanity. Um, and I think, that's, I think that's really, really vital. Mm -hmm. I think there's a, behind that there's another gift as well. Um, it's a difficult gift. And I think it's that maybe the environmental crisis is also a reminder that we have outgrown um, our relationship to our resources. Mm -hmm. We have outgrown it. We've outgrown our relationship with oil and fossil fuel, we've, we've outgrown it. We don't know that we have, but we have. Mm -hmm. And it's time for us to be bigger, be more imaginative, and move to um, a, a new level um, of the creation of energy. Um, you know, it takes a long time for, for a species, for a people, to know that they've outgrown something, you know? It takes a really long time. Yeah. It takes a long time to know that, you know, you've outgrown eating your food raw, you know. I don't know, the I don't know the last person who tore off a piece of deer, stuck it in their mouth raw and thought, this doesn't, there's got to be a better way to do this, yeah. you know. And then someone got fire and then they put it on it and then, I said, this is nice, this is great. You know, I don't know how long it takes before we... No, we've outgrown something. <clears throat> yeah. And we've outgrown, we've outgrown all this business. You know, yeah. it's time to, time to ditch it. <coughs> enter, me. enter, a, enter a... A new phase. A super some, phase. Yeah, a new of, way of being civilized, I think. Way, yeah, a way of being civilized, a way of being human. Yeah. Time to... But that time is running out as well, it's isn't it? Out. And it's kind of mm. accelerating. Yeah, it's accelerating, yeah. it's running out. Mm. But again, we're, that's, that's what we are. We, you know, we, it's, it's for me, it's not an accident that we have done, we've achieved more, more in terms of creativity, more in terms of damage, more in the last three, four, five hundred years mm. than we have in 100,000 years. Um, it's, it's not an accident. Mm -hmm. we're, we're in an accelerating phase <clears throat> of what it is to be human for a reason. It's not because we're hurtling towards destruction. I think it's because we're hurtling towards a new flowering. Mm -hmm. um, so it's either we, we treat it as doom, which is what most of the environmental movement is saying, mm -hmm. or we treat it as this secret gift, there, yeah. there is a gift in here waiting for you. Yeah. It's an opportunity uh, as well. And I think that's, the, the, you know, the, you talked about paralysis, you know, stopping or inaction being prevented from acting. If, you know, you go with the doom way, then you think, well, 
if you go with the whatever doom, I do isn't going to make a you, difference. If you go with the yeah, doom so where you're not going to open those letters because no, you yeah. think I don't have the money. Yeah. What's the point of opening those letters? Mm. It's telling me what I know already. Yeah. Um, but if you go with the opportunity way, the gift way, you open it. You are owing us two hundred fifty thousand pounds. We're coming to take your house, but I'm like, but. <laughs> If you listen to this letter and come have a conversation with us or somebody, actually you could start a whole new life. This life you've been living, you've outgrown it. It's not, it's not working for you anymore. That's why, that's why you're in debt. This life you're living is not working for you anymore. <clears throat> so it's finding you. Need you, a new, you need a new, new life. Ways. You yeah. need a new way. Yeah. Um, come talk to us or come talk to somebody. <laughs> There's a gift in here waiting for you. Yeah, so that's where the hope is, I think, that's as well. What, in, that's, in, that's, in, but it has in, to be talked to. It's, it's a, <coughs> like I said, it's a, gift, it's a gift behind the gift, behind the, behind the doom, behind the terror. Mm -hmm. It's, you know, you can't... When you're telling a story, you can't put the gift in the front, you know? The gift has to be also talked to. We have to earn the discovery of that gift. Mm. Okay. Well, I think now would be a good time for you to read... <clears throat> us this amazing poem which is called The Broken. Well, it depends on if the, uh, it depends on if the audience is ready. Are you all ready to... Yeah. <laughs> and then I there will never, be time afterwards for questions as well, hopefully. Never, never read this poem out before in its, comple <clears throat> in its completeness. This is an absolute first. Um, you have to take a bit of a deep breath, a deep spiritual breath. I didn't hear you take a deep breath. <laughs> I would ask you to shake, <laughs> shake a little bit, shake that sitting down, get ready for a new conversation. It's a poem called The Broken. When they asked me to come up with words I could speak to a world on the verge of environmental collapse, I had a crisis of my own. Fevers run in the veins. The season runs on broken groves. The facts are horrific. The evidence overwhelming. And still we carry on as if there were no crisis looming. Thunder hovers above our roofs. Earth shakes beneath our floors. What can one say to those who either don't want to hear or have heard enough? What can one say that doesn't paralyze some with the sheer scale of the problem? In the end, I wrote a poem of two lines, composed of just 12 words. The words were photosynthesized on grass grown on Hessian and floated on the Brown River. Can't you hear the future weeping? Our love must save the world. Good Thames, glide gently while I sing this song. Good Thames, we know not for the earth how long. Too. This earth that we love is in grave danger because of us. We have raped, exploited, abused, wrecked, disemboweled, and destroyed her. We blow her up, we blast her apart, we smash her, we detonate atomic bombs on her, we poison her. The oceans are acidic. The rising mouths of the sea will devour men in their lunch breaks, women at their desks, children wandering home from school. Fumes in the air, chemicals 
in the water, greenhouse emissions, throttling time, leaking landfills, batteries and plastic, hydrocarbons and cows, and sterile yields of crops will kill millions. Trees are disappearing. Forests are becoming legends, rare as unicorns. All over the world, forests have become graveyards of trees, nothing there but the ghosts and stumps of the thousand species. The Earth's topsoil, blown away, turned to dust, drained and weakened. And now trees have no great depths to bind their roots, and the sudden storms blow over ancient oaks and sequoias. Saplings having thin earth to grow on are pale as blonde spiders. Fishes are dwindling in the sea. Can you hear the future weeping? Three. In the past, we have used fear. The awakening permafrost, the ice mountains of the Antarctic will dissolve and drown our cities. Deserts will roam the world at will. Winters will turn to blistering summers, and summers will turn to hell. Buckets will find no water in the well. Dolphins will perish on our beaches, and the ruined ships that are grounded whales will be the common sight of our shores. We have thrown at people distressing facts, numbers, temperatures, loss of species. Will undersea hydrates collapse? Will the bat and the rhino survive? Will the tiger and the butterfly breathe the same air? Will the fortunes of the songbird revive? Year by year, pollination slows down, and insects, little angels, grow small in number. And still, we drive our fossil fuel cars, make flights around the world, and consume vast amounts of energy. The car and the aeroplane, ships and long haulage trucks, the lighting of cities, buildings alight at night. It seems to be asking too much of us to alter how we live so that Earth so that life on Earth can survive. Facts don't alter our dreams or change our minds. We can't retrace the track back from the cave to spaceships. We can't undo the air conditioner or the computer. We can't walk backwards from space stations to the club or spear, from the oven back to the boomerang. Nobody wants to turn back civilization's clock no one wants to regress. Fear doesn't work. Guilt doesn't work. The man who kills the lion would long have closed his heart. So I thought that maybe love will shift our vision, shift our breath, shift our dreams. See the far as near. Faraway deserts in the exhaust of a car, flowering oasis in the solar panel, with fear, we act hastily and unsteadily. Tear up friendship in a chemical mood, destroy a lifetime's love in a manner that's rude, lose a future, close up a past, break up the present so nothing may last. With love, we act wisely and comprehensively. Hold our breath and wait for the madness to pass. Let the seed show what acres it may grow. Maybe... If we all do something modest, then the dead land can yield roses again. 
and desert be fertilized with marigolds. Then real change can be accomplished. Maybe it's not a going back, not a return to the serenity of the plow or the switch-led bullock or walking across the valley to the remote school or fetching water in a perforated calabash or walking in a perfect calabash from a broken river. Maybe it's a going forward, living in harmony with ourselves, watching the fruit tree bloom in the quiet season, drinking the clear water after the long walk, listening to the flowers furl in the moonlight, working on the garden with sunlight and music, fructifying time, rewilding our dreams. Maybe living simply is the evolutionary way. Perhaps we've grown too complicated for our own good. Want our fruits to ripen without much time. Desire the mango and the banana out of season, out of rhyme. Want all the nice things of the world without paying the price. Technology without despoilation. Jewelry without exploitation. The latest fashion without sweatshops. Living like kings and queens with faraway peoples as invisible slaves. To sit on the top of the world with a humming conscience while colonialism morphs and acquires a smooth voice, a caring demeanor, seems to make sense, but has the same deadly effect. We want more than we need. Kind Yangtze, glide smoothly while I sing this song. Kind Yangtze, we know not for the earth how long for. I think love is the highest economy of life. It moves the world with an invisible touch. And the labors of Hercules don't seem so much. For money, we slave and we plot and we kill. We sweat in the desert and freeze in the office. But with love, we give gifts beyond the cost of life, never-ending gifts that transcend time's strife. It is the most efficient force for civilization. Symmetry in the garden and the dream of music. If we woke up to our love for the earth, we'll stop doing most of the things we're doing. No more plastic in the sea, no more hybrids into the earth. In the Tao Te Ching, there's a light crammed passage which says that the sage loves the world as they love their body. If the earth where our body, would we do half the things to it that we're doing? Take a nuclear blast to the kidney, smash the heart with metal spikes, frack the intestines, mine the brain with explosive rain. Nothing can save our world but love. Contemplating the beauty of a leaf, meditating on the breathing of a child, or cradling in one's arms the face the dream. For love is the last power that stands between us and extinction. Old Ganga, glide sweetly while I sing this song. Old Ganga, we know not for the earth how long. For when we act with love, five, for when we act with love, we act with all the great powers of the human spirit. The mother who raises the car to free her child. The father who labors from dawn to dawn. No other quality comes close to bringing out the full genius of the human race. 
toughness will fail. Even the nail succumbs to rust and will exhausts itself in the end. Armies march to the end of the world and still the war remains. Only love is cosmic. The stars, the heart, only love is endless. Six, what we need now in this 11th hour when the bell tolls from the sinister tower is the greatness of the human, Gilgamesh in the form of a child. This is the time to show that we are greater than our history, greater than all the brainwashing that makes us feel that we can't be agents of change. So I went out into the street today and marched with millions to light a way. So I said to the armies, return to the hearth. Even a child can change the day. Even you can make a new way. The greatness we need is love. There's no true greatness without this love. Enkidu is with us even as he falls. Shango is with us in his darkened cell. When we love, we know the right thing to do. We will divert the river through, the, through our murky hearts. We will clean the wasteland with our hands and carts. I'm not here to prescribe this or that action, take out the compost, put a, put a solar panel on that sloping roof, don't drive a car, don't fly if it's not far, don't waste water. Do you love this world? Seas, valleys, trees, destinies, coral reefs. Do you love this earth? Faces, bodies, dreams, hollies. Then all you have to do is listen to your love. What did she whisper by this dream? What did that look of hers mean? Don't do to the earth what you won't do to your body. Don't detonate nuclear bombs in the heart. Don't frack the eyes. Don't mine the genitals with metal files. Great Nile, run bravely while I sing my song. Great Nile, we know not for the heart how long. Seven, but the love I'm talking about is not passive. Don't, doesn't sleep when the baby cries in the hot bed. Doesn't stare with placid eyes when a lion crouches near. It's a love that acts, that roars at the crouching shadow of tower, power, of the minister who lets the rivers turn into sewers. It is active. It is a love that stops something awful happening to the one you love. It is protective. I went out into the dark today and fought to stop the forest from falling away. I raised the alarm at the farms and at the fires. Let's turn the fierce force of our love to saving life on this planet. March and sing and do the tough thing. Demand climate justice, that those who caused the greater climate damage bear the higher cost. Should the tortoise bear the same weight as the elephant? Save the earth one step at a time. It's time we began to do it now in whatever way we can. What is love's most magical quality? It inspires transformation. The men who killed half the earth became its greatest warriors. The most indifferent into the most passionate. The hater becomes a lover, the denier an elaborator. Love changes us, changes stone and rust, dead land 
and dust. Will Gilgamesh cut down the trees? Can the domestic cat become a lioness? Can the rat become a tiger or the bat a glimmering unicorn? Will Humbaba defend the forests? Can Homo sapiens leap into something higher? Not supermen or superwomen, but transcendent being? Can we become something more, needing a new name? We have got to achieve that rare thing, a quantum leap in our life's possibilities. From devouring the earth to making a world, from waste to conservation, from pollution to transmutation, Everything we need is here. Sun, sea, earth, wind, imagination, will, vision, mind. We need to leap right now to the next stage of our evolution. Maybe this was the only way we were going to get there, through the dead end of the climate terminus, the follies in the garden. Maybe we're only forced to make this leap because we've nowhere else to go. We've run out of road. And instead of tipping over into our own abyss, we do the unthinkable thing and leap to the next stage of the human in the dying minutes of our millennial drama. Without this leap, there's no future. It's too late to stroll to the next stage, too late to let it happen organically, too late to let nature take its course. In that sense, we're at a terminal moment at no other time has the world depended on what we do or don't do. The trees look at us and wonder. Dogs regard us with quizzical eyes. Newborn babies stare at us and mutely ask if we know what we're doing. The future pauses at the gasoline station waiting for a lift to itself. The past looks forward at us and recoils at the consequences of itself. The present waits, coiled between the abyss and the unknown. It's either death or transformation. It's either extinction or becoming a newer, more efficient species. Will the bees in the garden pollinate? Will the seed unfurl into new flowers? Will we harness the mycelium realm, create networks to the future? Will the dance in the garden levitate? Will the smoke light its own fire? Will the end of time be the beginning of a new world? Will we bequeath to the ages a transcendent light? Will our cars sail through the air with the power of our thought? Will the new energy of the future be spiritual? Will we power our homes with the orgasm? Will the planes sail through the air with the collective electricity of passengers? Will we discover the infinite source of energy that was always there within us in the eternal substance of the air and light? Isn't it time that we expected flight? Nothing ordinary can achieve this. Only love can do it. Can't you hear the future weeping? Our love must save the world.
I need, a, I need a gin and tonic after that. <laughs> I think we all do. <laughs> um, we've got literally a few minutes. Um, just if there are any questions, I think there's a roving mic around. Um, if you'd like to ask, raise your hand. Thanks. You mentioned um, earlier about um, how difficult it was um, and how painful writing is. And I was, I'm trying to write and find it incredibly painful. Um, and I wondered if every book that you've ever written has also been equally painful. Well, you know, I use the word, use the word painful um, in my own personal way. I don't mean that I'm, like, you know, um, suffering. And it's just painful because, how can I put this gently? Um, writing is finally about you, about who you are what do you want to do, what you want to give, what you want to share. Um, it's, you know, what you are writing is yourself. Um, and what you have to deal with, what you have to work through is you. All your failings, your difficulties, your gifts, all of that stuff. It's, it's you, you know. It's not easy to give a gift. We think you can just get up and give a gift, but you, it's not easy. To give a gift, you must first of all give yourself. You must first of all overcome yourself. Um, so writing is writing is a very to write a clear to write a good sentence, a clear sentence. Um, you, so, so much of yourself you have to get out of the way. The, that's the most difficult work. That's the pain, really. It's, it's really it's really who's wielding the pen? Is it the is it the ego? Is it the person who wants to be really well known? Is it the person who wants to be famous that's willing the pen? Or is it because something needs to be said deep inside of you that we need to hear, we need to share? Mm. You know? That's a really good description <laughs> of life. Thank you. When you write in your books, does it take the same time? Each book is different. Um, each book is different. Some, some, uh, I once, once took me 17 years to write one short story. <laughs> um, I can still remember the process. I went to the bank, we keep talking about banks, forgive me. I went to the bank to try and draw some money out and um, I had a little bank slip and I had this perfect first sentence and I, I wrote it down on this bank slip and I thought when I get home I'll write it. 17 years later, before I could come up with the next sentence. <laughs> but you did write lots of other things in between, I guess. So it, it depends, you know. Every, every book is different. There's some books, some stories just turn up complete, you know. Um, it's a good question. The Famish Tro took me many years, many, many years. There's a Astonishing the Gods, another book that I'm quite well known for. I first had the idea when I was about 13 in Nigeria. I just had this idea. I'd never, I wasn't writing then, but I just had this idea. And when I began writing, I, I, I tried to write it. It was too big for me. It's weird how you can have an idea bigger than your future self. So you have this idea at 13 that you're not able to write till you're way, way into your 30s. It's amazing. So it's a, it's a wonderful thing. 
Um, don't worry about time. time. Time is not important in writing. It's not important at all. It's just, it's about listening and about doing it every day and about humility and boldness. You have to be, every good writer is bold. You know, to cross out a bad sentence, that takes courage. Really, it's easier to leave it there. Like that urgent letter that's come through the post. <laughs> right. Well, I think we'll have to finish there. Thank you. Good question. Good questions. Um, thank you. Is there you. any really <laughs> other urgent question, though? Because <laughs> I, I don't want someone to live saying, I meet them afterwards and like, Ben, you know, I really wanted to ask you this question. I didn't get a chance to. Is it if there's a burning, urgent question? If not. Are there other voices in the gaps that are allies of yours? The three top other voices, or two, or one? Or, I, or your, your only voice? The voices in the gap? Yeah, about that. Mm -hmm. Oh, are there other voices? Oh, yeah, they're in behind me and in front of me and to the side of me. They're voices, and I hope you'll join them. Yeah, we need, we need, we need all kinds of voices. You know, I think if you ask me the thing that we need most, um, we just need ordinary folk, you and I, to just tell our governments that, you know, we're aware of this, we're concerned about it, and we're not going to vote for you mm -hmm. if this is not on the top two or three items of the priority of this government. We're just not going to vote for you because it means you're not taking our concerns about this planet seriously. We have to make it such that the governments, in their selfishness and wanting to keep to power, will have to do something about it. That's, that's our job. You know, if we can get the governments to do that, the governments will make the corporations do it. And if they do it, then half the work is done. Because it's, it's, it's the governments and corporations that can really scale back, can really um, change things. It, it, it's not difficult. It just takes... A person with vision who feels, who just feels the truth of it and wants a world that their children can live in. If they, if they don't have children, that their friends' children <laughs> can, can live in. Well, that's a really yeah. powerful call to action to end on. So yeah. thank you so much, thank Ben O'Cree. Thank you very amazing. much. Thank you. Thank you.